Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. Our episode today features the music of Warhorse, made in 2011. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Steven Spielberg really likes to tell war stories. Ever since he was a teenager making Super 8 movies in his backyard in Phoenix, Spielberg has had a fascination with war. He's made six feature-length war movies, and the one we're discussing today is War Horse. It's Spielberg's first foray into World War I, and possibly one of the toughest films he has made. Helping Spielberg along was John Williams, who made War Horse his second film score of 2011. Joining me to analyze this score today on the baton is Victor Joss, a longtime listener to the show and making his debut as a co-host. It's great to have you here, Victor. Thank you so much, Jeff, for letting me be part of your podcast. It does, uh, it does mean a lot. Victor's a composer, and I'm sure he's going to bring a lot of his musical insights to the show to give us a deeper appreciation of the War Horse score. So, Victor, tell us about your musical background. Uh, yes, sure. I I come from a family of musicians, and uh, my siblings and I have always been surrounded by music. And when we were little, the question that came was not, do you want to play music, but rather, which instrument do you want to play? And uh, apparently I answered that I wanted to play the violin and be an orchestra conductor. And uh, my parents kind of wisely decided to let me start with the violin first. Uh, but being a professional musician and even a composer has not been an obvious thing from the very beginning. But it's clear that discovering John Williams was this, was decisive, you know, in my choice to write music for a living, especially for cinema. This has led me to study um, film scoring in Berkeley Valencia's master's degree a couple years ago. This was uh, another experience that has changed me completely. Um, I remember actually precisely that day, you know, around 13 years ago, I'd say, when my younger brother brought back home one of those play-along CDs music teachers would give their students. This one was entitled John Williams' Greatest Hits. Uh, we played it, and I can assure you that something was triggered inside me that day. I was, I was fascin fascinated by all that music that came from this single great artist and something was changed in me. And from that moment, I have listened to as much music from John Williams as I could. Still the same today, by the way. <laughs> I remember that the cues from Star Wars made a great impression on me. And since I had been fascinated for some time before by those VHS of the first trilogy we had at home, the cues from Harry Potter as well. So thanks to John Williams, I fell in love with Spielberg's, Spielberg's cinema and then with cinema in general. His music definitely made me who and what I am today, and I'm deeply, deeply grateful for it. Yeah, you're not the only person who said that John Williams has influenced their careers mm -hmm. in music. So is there any way we could hear some of your music, either in a particular film or as a commercially released soundtrack? Uh, I, I've had the chance to work on several short movies up to this day, or even to compose concert music that was performed live, but no music has been commercially released so far. Though you, you can have a listen to some music I've written on my YouTube channel, 
channel if you like. It's called Victor GW, Victor JW. Or my website, my website, sorry, um, victorjust.com. Uh, it's it's V I C T O R J O S S E.com. If you like, <laughs> particularly the concert music that has been performed live. I must say that my goal would be to be able to compose for a first feature film, feature film this year as I turn 27. And John Williams was actually 27 in 1959 when he worked on his first movie, Daddy O, if I'm not mistaken. So if it happens, it would actually mean a great deal to me, symbolically. I'm sure. Or who knows? Your early films could be like Daddy O was for John Williams. I mean, it wasn't very memorable then, but... You know, you just keep working at it like he did, and one day you'll be writing something like The Reavers, and you'll get a famous director to notice you. <laughs> that would be fun. Yep. So speaking of that, Spielberg and Williams marked their 26th film together with War Horse. And it's a film that allows Spielberg to present a war story in an entirely different way. This story is told pretty much exclusively from the viewpoint of a horse who seems to be destined for greatness from the moment he is born. Now, I don't know what has changed much of my life these past nine years since I first saw the film, but I found War Horse to be much more emotional for me the second time around. And I attribute a lot of that to the music, which I thought was just okay when I heard it in 2011. So, I mean, Victor, to be honest, I think having gone through this journey through John Williams' career has given me great perspective on his composition style. And my brain now is triggered by his music much differently. And I won't say that this goes into my John Williams top 10, but War Horse is definitely one of the best scores he composed for a Spielberg film since Schindler's List. You know, when you offered your listeners to co-host some episodes with you, I immediately thought of War Horse because I remembered how emotional both the movie and its music made me feel in the theater for the premiere. I was watching the movie with one of my younger sisters and we both loved it very much. Everyone actually gave the film an ovation at the end, something that I haven't seen a lot of times. That was quite, you know, very moving. And my feelings towards the movie remain intact today. Though the story is told through the lens of World War I, it's entirely fictional, based on a children's novel by Michael Morpurgo from 1982. I love actually the originality of the story and how it follows the horse through his different encounters and how the horse joy changes the life of everyone he meets. It feels like Forrest Gump told from a horse perspective, if you can think of it that way. Mm -hmm. But it was also a very popular play in London before it became a movie. And the play didn't use real horses, but rather puppets that were worked to look just like a horse galloping on stage. Yes, you're right. And I wonder how this worked on stage. Um, as for the movie, I was extremely seduced by its beautiful photography. Some of the movie scenes were filmed in Dartmoor. And I was actually visiting Dartmoor about one year before Spielberg started sh uh, shooting his film there. Sometimes I s I'm still feeling so disappointed that I missed him that close. Well, the film shoot was kept so secret that you might not have even known Spielberg was working in Dartmoor until after he was done. But back to that amazing cinematography, this is probably Janusz Kaminski doing some of his best work. There are some shots that I feel couldn't have been done anywhere except on a computer, but because there, it's just no way to capture the light the way he did and the angles the way he did. But 
yes, it's very beautiful, even in those gruesome battle scenes. So the movie didn't have any big movie stars in the main cast. Emily Watson, who had been nominated for two Academy Awards in the 1990s, was probably the biggest name in the cast at the time. We have to say at the time. Jeremy Irvine beat out a lot of English actors for the lead role of Albert, including a fresh-faced Eddie Redmayne, who still got a big breakthrough that year with My Week with Marilyn. Irvine was making his film debut with War Horse, and for my money, it looks like he had been working in movies since he was a child actor. I, I found it interesting to see that there were a lot of familiar faces making appearances here and there, and but that they were only passing, you know? Like Tom Hiddleston and Benedict Cumberbatch are on screen for less than 20 minutes in the movie. David Thewlis, who was wrapping up his work on the hybrid of films in 2011, plays an evil landlord in a few scenes. They are brief encounters and Joey remains the center of the narration almost all the time. Albert doesn't even show up in the film for almost the entire second act. You're right. Joey the horse is the one constant in the movie. Even John Williams' score has to shift its focus a few times as the locations and plot change throughout this two-hour and 24-minute film. It's tender for the first act, then it gets heavier as the war progresses, and then returns to that beautiful John Williams sentimentality that many could try to emulate but not make as touching as John Williams does. Yes, absolutely. Um, the music of the film is has a very large scope, very lyrical too in some moments. There is tenderness, there is grandeur, drama, epicness, sweetness, and even dissonance in some places. Also, I love how thematic it is. War Horse was set for theatrical release on Christmas Day 2011, just four days before another Spielberg film with a John Williams score, the Adventures of Tintin. How was John Williams able to get the music for both scores done? Well, he was able to write and record the music for War Horse in February and March 2011, since filming had been completed in October 2010. This came in between recording sessions for the Tintin movie, so Williams was essentially working on both scores almost simultaneously, which is a difficult task since both films require such different musical approaches. Wow. I'm always amazed when I find out about all those times when John Williams had to compose almost simultaneously for very contrasted movies, such as Jurassic Park in Schindler's List, or Minority Report in Catch Me If You Can, or, you know, War of the Worlds and Memoirs of Geisha. With War Horse and the Adventures of Tintin, Williams proved us again that even being almost 80 years old, he was still capable of wonders, agility, versatility, and and, and great inspiration. Yeah, there are a couple of great main themes Williams wrote for War Horse. I think I wasn't as enamored with the score in 2011 because the themes weren't as strong as I had hoped they would be. But as I listened to the score recently, it's really all about the way the orchestra is playing that sells the music. The score was played by the Hollywood Studio Orchestra, which is made of some of the best musicians in the Los Angeles area. And among those is Tim Morrison, who everyone remembers as the trumpet player on many John Williams scores of the 1990s and 2000s. And we'll get to his big solo pieces later. Yes, let's, let's start talking about the music. But 
before we do, we must let you know that a lot of major plot points will be revealed. So uh, either watch the movie first or be prepared for to know everything that happens in War Horse. The best place to start when talking about the score is that five-minute overture that starts the film. There is no dialogue as we watch a foal being born, grow to become a feasty colt, and, and then get sold to a poor farmer, his wife and young son Albert. I will never forget how those flute notes in the introduction got me right away in the theater. I, I do love flute in general, and here it's following, following so perfectly the singing of the bird and the ambient, ambient noises that we hear before the film actually begins. These flute solos are performed by Louise Di Tullio. The whole sequence was musically amazing. Uh, I remember it as one of the biggest emotional experiences I had in a theater with music composed by John Williams. And it was it was extremely important to me. Uh, before that, I'd been a fan of his for some years, since I was around 14, I'd say. But I didn't have lots of opportunities to go see a movie with, with uh, Williams' music in a theater, uh, at least being fully aware of his involvement and his genius. The first one was the fourth Indiana Jones movies, then there was Tintin. 
So you would say it was this movie and particularly this open opening music that really, I guess for lack of a better way of saying it, opened your ears to John Williams' music? Um, actually, I already knew Williams and I had been listening to all his music for a while before his, this movie. But as, uh, as a theater experience, Tintin and especially Warhorse definitely did. Yes, that sounds like what I experienced with Jurassic Park. So I, I identify with that. What really grabbed me about the music for the prologue in War Horse was the moment Albert runs up the hill to try and start a friendship with this cult. The orchestra swell reminds me very much of the opening of The Patriot when we get that amazing swell of music on the wide shot of the farm. We have a presentation of some important themes in this overture, and we know at that moment that it will be a strong and very lyrical and emotional score. I actually already knew some of the themes before the movie was even premiered, though I usually try not to listen to any soundtrack before watching the movie. Here, the reason was that the actual music by Williams was used in the movie trailer, and that is not really a common thing. I remember being overly excited by what I hear, heard in the trailer and then in this overture. So here are the themes Williams presents in this music, in the music that starts the film, and we'll replay them to help you understand them better. There's one that could be a theme of the land, maybe, playing above the gorgeous shots of Dartmoor. Then a theme that reflects the impetuosity, impetuosity <laughs> and strength, strength of the horse. Then a grand theme that could be a theme for liberty and or a theme for the horse joy himself, uh, which I would differentiate from the theme illustrating the connection between Albert and Joy, in other words their friendship, a theme that we hear a bit later in the film. 
I think this main theme for Joey is terrific, and I really noticed how it brings nobility to a very comedic scene in the beginning of the film when Albert and Joey begin to bond while simultaneously annoying the parents. Here comes the main theme on the flute during a tender moment between boy and horse. The score in the first act owes a lot to English composers such as Ralph von, von Williams, who became famous for his very pastoral English music. I don't know if you have heard of von Williams's Fantasia on a theme by Thomas Tallis, but it's a fantastic and beautiful piece for strings that can be felt in the, in the overture especially. Oh yeah, John Williams loves writing in the style of music that von Williams made popular. It was what he leaned on for Jane Eyre back in 1971. I think this was the first time Williams has really been able to work in this style since writing the score to Jane Eyre, and you could tell how much he really relished the opportunity. I'm sure Williams told Spielberg he wanted the music to feel like it was written by an Englishman, and it really does accurately depict the bucolic English country life we see, at least musically. We can hear a tune that is clearly inspired by traditional English folk music in ternary or triple meter in the auction scene that when Joy is bought by Albert's, Albert's father. Uh, when I say triple meter or ternary, I, uh, this refers to pieces using a beat that is divided into three instead of two, which gives a very dance-like feel. I can maybe play on the piano an example of what I mean. If you have a beat that is doing like this, in, uh, maybe a bit slower, so, like, so that I can play. You'd have in, in that in uh, inside that beat something like, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Instead of two, which would be, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, one. Uh, it's just a very simple example, but just to explain what I meant uh, with a ternary or triple meter. Um, you can find a lot of ternary tunes in English traditional music and a lot of ternary tunes in this score. You can even think of other movies that are scored by Williams that are set in England or more generally in the UK. And very often they're filled with triple meter music. 
uh, Harry Potter, uh, for example, or Angela's Ashes. If you think of Harry Potter, you'll find that some of the main themes are triple metered. For example, when you have it's both of them are triple metered. Um, moreover, there is a specific rhythm called Sicilian or Siciliana, Siciliana that is central in the themes I sang and that is also central in uh, Greensleeves, for example, a very famous English tune. It's the tan, 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 tan. This rhythm, you have it in Greensleeves that goes ta ti ta tam pa dam pam 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 You have the tam pa dam pam um, I'm sure you can also find it in Warhorse in some places. Um, now, to illustrate all that, we'll play an example at uh, the beginning of the auction scene. Alright, so after that, the plowing scene is one of the big emotional highlights of the movie, and one that definitely benefits from having a composer like John Williams on the project. This scene runs almost eight minutes, showing us how hard Albert works to get Joey to learn how to plow a rocky field while the neighbors mock him. It's important that the field is plowed so the family can pay their rent on time while the harvest comes. This scene is also extremely crucial to Joey's survival much later in the film. And to talk about that, we're going to have to warn you again about some pretty big spoilers coming up. Yes, indeed. Um, when Albert is trying to make Joey pull the plow, um, the theme for war makes its introduction on the flute, then later on the strings. Uh, it's played later by Tim Morrison on the trumpet, an instrument that Williams often uses in political films or war films. This theme is foreshadowing future dark events when World War I will be raging. It will make sense, actually, when we see the scene where Joey is pulling the cannon up a hill. It's because of the plowing scene that Joey could go through some of the terrible events that will happen later. So the music is making connection to present and future events. On the CD release of the soundtrack, the war theme, uh, the war theme doesn't show up, but it starts with a dark version of Joey's impetuosity or strength as it is being put to the test.
And then both of Joey's themes come in as he gets better with the plowing, but not good enough to break through the topsoil. The music is trying very hard to encourage Joey just as much as Albert is. And then some hope as the rain softens the ground.
Joey encounters a big rock in his path, but John Williams knows he's getting through it, and this is where the heartstrings get a big tug. So what surprised me about the final minute of the sequence is that the music doesn't get triumphant as the camera cranes up to show us completely plowed field. The friendship theme appears triumphantly as Joey and Albert's friendship is sealed forever. But concerning the delicate ending, one could say that the flute at the end is like, I don't know, the voice of the land itself, maybe? The land in which Albert and Joey have just owned their, their place. Yeah, that's a good point. So, a few scenes later, a heavy rain destroys the turnip crop, and in order to pay his rent, Albert's father shells Joey to the English army as the war begins. John Williams stays out of the first part of this emotional goodbye scene, only bringing in music as Albert gives Joey the pennant his father earned as a soldier. 
John Williams is always known to keep his music low-key when there's important dialogue, and he does so with the friendship theme here as Albert promises to find Joey during the war. Tim Morrison's trumpet comes in to prepare us for the segue to the 80 minutes of the film dealing with the war. Tom Hiddleston is the captain who takes Joey as his horse, riding him during an attack on a German camp in the woods. But the attack doesn't end well for the British, as Hiddleston's character is killed. So the music for that attack is the first of many strong-bodied cues in the second act, with the trumpet once again setting up the military attack and the snare drums pulsing through the ride, almost sounding like the galloping of the horses. Thank you. 
After Hiddleston is killed off-screen, the next thing we see is Joey racing riderless through the woods. Adding in Tim Morris's trumpet really makes the sight of Joey probably trying to run back to England and safety with Albert absolutely heartbreaking. Joey's next chapter takes him into the German army, where he's taken care of by two young soldiers who happen to be brothers. When one of them is assigned to the front lines to attack the British forces, the older brother takes Joey and Joey's friend Topthorn and runs off with his younger brother. The music for this scene is unexpectedly strong, full of the same pulsing rhythm that we heard in the British attack scene, but this time in the strings. The story moves to a farmhouse in the French countryside for the next chapter, and I feel that as Williams was inspired by British composers like Von Williams, he might have been inspired by great French composers like Ravel or Debussy in some of the scenes. Like, for example, when we meet Emily, the young French girl, and when she's introducing Joey and Topthorne to her grandfather after finding them in, her, in their barn. There is definitely something from Debussy in some moments, harmonically speaking. So things get much heavier, literally, when the German army reclaims Joey and Topthorn to pull the large cannons up a hill to attack the British trenches.
Using heavy instruments such as trombones and tubas really makes you feel the weight of the cannons. All right, Victor, I'm going to let you take the discussion of Joey's run through No Man's Land after his friend Topthorn dies of exhaustion. This scene was so extremely emotional for me, and actually just thinking about it now brings some tears to my eyes. Yeah, I'll try not to cry myself while talking about it. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> when, when we see for the first time the horrible conditions of the trenches, there is absolutely no music, except or a temporary source music coming from a bagpipe, that feels quite futile. During the scene of the first battle in the No Man's Land, the use of sound effects, like bombs, bullets, barbed wire, reminds me of the opening, of scene, uh, the opening scene here in Saving Private Ryan. The whole mise-en-scene of the scene is actually does. We discover that Albert has joined the British army and is part of a big assault on the Germans. After they arrive at the German trench, Albert feels lost and almost shoots his friend Andrew right before the gas attack. Only the wind blows. There is nothing good, nothing decent, nothing humane, nothing to feel but emptiness and, and, and despair. And then there's more despair with the death of Topthorn. This is quite a devastating scene and the music does just what it needs to let the tears flow. Williams starts with dark, painful, and even tired strings with a slow tempo and some specific, uh, specific articulations that actually make you feel like they are walking with heavy and painful steps, and it matches perfectly the heavy and tired steps of the horses. As Topthorn is falling with ex exhaustion, 
The strings start a long and exhausted like descending line and as the horse is agonizing, a soft and very delicate clarinet enters with a chant almost like a cry. The composer, composer is indeed making the instruments cry by using a lot of suspensions, meaning when a note from a chord remains in the following chord uh, before resolving. Uh, I could maybe play an example what I mean. If you have a chord that does like this, um, like uh, C, minor, C minor, you have the, the E flat, the the note doesn't belong to the uh, to the next chord but from uh, it belongs to the previous chords and just it stays there it remains here for a while before resolving so you have a lot of that and also grace notes that make the whole thing very um, plaintive In the end, a low, dark, plain and final note played by strings in unison is accompanying, accompanying the last breath of this brave horse. After that, the strings came back, first the violas, then a big crescendo of the whole string section, leading to a devastating climax as Joe is literally crying at the loss of his friend. Again, at that moment, lots of suspensions and grace notes.
This queue makes me feel like it is also some kind of requiem dedicated to all the horses that were sacrificed to war, like an homage to them. Like uh, Williams did in scores like JFK with a full strings homage to Kennedy. So it's interesting that Top Thorn doesn't get any thematic material written for him, but John Williams more than made up for it with this agonizing, beautiful cue. I didn't think I would get emotional over Top Thorn's death because he's not a main character, but seeing him close his eyes and also hear those strings rise with those um, those connections that yeah, you were yeah. talking about, the suspensions, really makes for a very tear-jerking scene. Yeah, it definitely does. I agree. But the big musical moments, moments sorry, of maybe the entire film is Joey's escape from a large tank that leads him to the no man's land. The music starts with the first step of the horse. Uh, it's very synchronized uh, with a pulsing ostinato of snare drums like the horse's steps. It's very epic music with a great variation of the war theme with full orchestra this time. Also with a full brass new theme that is specific to this scene. Percussions give a lot of strength and pulse here, pulse here. Uh, more than in any other cue, I'd say. I remember getting very excited about this scene when it started, thinking that Joey was going to encounter Albert in the trenches. And the music really gets close to the type of heroic music Williams was writing in his golden age for Star Wars and Superman, for example. But Joey gets frustrated and runs out into no man's land, and this is where it gets tragic. Yes, when Joey gets stuck in the barbed wires, there, there are frantic strings that repri reprise the motif from the beginning of the horse's race. Alongside with a very dark and ominous piano as Joey realizes he can't move.
Victor, I cannot imagine being a composer needing to watch the scene multiple times as you do to make sure the music works for this scene. I watched it a total of three times and it was almost too much to bear. I totally feel you. Um, myself as a composer, I, I think I'd love to score that kind of scene. Though I agree having to watch it so many times could be tough. So how about moving to a happier scene? Yes, please do. Um, personally, I've always loved reunion scenes in movies, and this one makes no exception. Joey has now been freed from the barbed wire, wires, but um, Doctor thinks he's too wounded to be left alive, and he orders to put an end to his misery. Then arrives Albert, who first attracts the attention of his horse uh, thanks to the call he'd been teaching him at the beginning of the story. As soldiers move away to reveal the presence of Albert, music starts. It's a very angelic beginning, uh, again a bit mystical. Something truly magical is happening there, something that we've been expecting for a long time. Um, to explain a bit musically what's happening, at the beginning you have a pedal and a tonic. Uh, the tonic is um, is the first note of a scale, if I, if I can say. And a pedal means a sustained note. Sustained notes, yeah, above which or underneath which chords or melodic lines will pass. Um, here it is played by the violins, and, and and underneath that there is a lovely melody played by piano, probably doubled by Celesta. That sounds very eerie, magical, um, even dreamy. Here is another typical trait of traditional music in general, having, as I was saying, a pedal on the, uh, of the tonic, which is, as I was saying, the first note of the scale. So for example, if we were in G, uh, the G would be the tonic. Um, so you could have a pedal on this one, just the G, and then having something uh, playing above it. Or uh, sometimes we can have also the dominant in the pedal. The dominant would be the fifth note of the scale. In this case, uh, D. So in this case, you have G, D, and you have this pedal, and above that a melody plays. Uh, for example, so this is a tune from another William Scorbitt. Just to explain, <laughs> uh, and usually in folkloric music, it, uh, the melody would avoid the leading tone. Uh, the leading tone is the note right before the tonic, and that is the basic of the tonal music. For example, as I was saying, uh, here we're in G, uh, so the leading tone we F sharp, 
the like, like half half tone be uh, under it. For example, another <laughs> hint. Um, so here it would avoid it. Uh, instead of having F sharp, you would have F natural. So if I play a melody with like uh, F natural, so avoiding the lead tone, it would uh, do something like. Um, For example, <laughs> uh, think of the opening shots of the movie, for example, with a pedal note on the strings above which the flute is playing its melody, or a bit later when the ethnic flute plays um, the melody in the beginning of the, this music for the reunion has no leading tone, and this pedal creates a reminder of traditional music, like a dreamy recollection of the beginning of the movie, uh, of the life both of the friends had in England. Also, it contains a little motif that is present in both Joey's Freedom theme and the Reunion Remembrance theme I'm going to talk about uh, right after. Um, when Albert and Joey recognize each other, uh, as well as when Albert tries to convince everyone that Joey is his horse, that he's a miracle horse, the friendship theme naturally plays several times. Strings and horns, woodwinds. As the doctor reveals the mark on Joy's head, horns and strings played again majestically.
A new theme eventually appears for the first time, as the doctor tells Albert that they'll take care good they take good care of his horse. So I don't know, does it represent some kind of a resolution? Uh, all that has been lost and found back, maybe a remembrance theme, a requiem for all the dead, uh, humans and horses. It is definitely new, but it feels familiar at the same time, because I think it's derived from the grand freedom theme, uh, at least in its opening notes, and also in the rhythm and construction of some phrases. There is a specific short motif I can play on the piano now, and that is present in both themes at the beginning. So this would, uh, this motif would be this one. So it's very short, very simple, but it's present in both themes. So the freedom theme would be. Uh, for example, in here, uh, the remembrance theme. And also in the in the construction of the phrase, as I was saying, you have da ti ta ti ta ta da da. So the reason would be ta 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 ti ta ti ta ti ta. And in the remembrance theme, ta ti ta ti ta ti ta da da ta 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 ta. So it's another similarity. Uh, this motif ta -da -da, is also present in many places throughout the score, including the beginning of the reunion cue, as I was saying. There is also a theme that we didn't mention. Um, towards the end, there is a final twist when Albert is just about to retrieve his horse in an auction. It turns out that Emily's grandfather is the one who is able to buy Joey, as his granddaughter is sadly dead and he claims the horse as a part of her memory. But when he realizes Joey was Albert's all along, he sweetly decides to let Joey go with him. And at that very moment, a theme plays, which I'm sure is Emily's theme.
I think this flute solo offered to Emily could have been written by someone like Claude Debussy or Gabriel Fauré. At least it kind of resonates that way to me somehow. The reunion remembrance theme brings the film to its end, played beautifully by the piano at first and then by the strings for last gorgeous and breathtaking rendition during the final reunion of Albert with his family. By the way, how amazing are the colors in that scene? So it is very probably a reunion and remembrance theme. As a side note, when it's playing the piano like this, the theme kind of reminds me of the With Malice Towards None theme that John Williams wrote in Lincoln, but that would be the focus of another episode of your podcast. And that's the next episode, so I'm definitely looking forward to hearing that in the score for Lincoln. So these shots for War Horse, some of them done through green screen and some done actually on location, are a big reason why Janusz Kaminski received an Oscar nomination for Best Cinematography and also won a couple of critics awards for his work. The Orange Sky reminds me very much of the look at the end of Gone with the Wind as Scarlett O'Hara says, tomorrow is another day. And just like the music here, Max Steiner's music at the end of The Gone with the Wind is absolutely gorgeous. The French Youth theme plays next for the last time, and finally the war theme accompanies the last shots on Joey, the war horse. What seals the deal for me is Tim Morrison's trumpet playing that war theme on the closing shot of Joey.
So John Williams hasn't written a dynamic closing of a film this good since Saving Private Ryan. When I first saw the film, the music had a major impact on me, but on my second viewing, many of the scenes in the film gripped me more emotionally, such as Top Thorn's death and the scene when Joey runs through the forest after Tom Hiddleston is shot. Audiences really connected to this movie as well, released on Christmas Day 2011. War Horse earned $79 million in the United States. Not a bad haul when you consider it was competing with The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the Sherlock Holmes sequel, and the Margaret Thatcher biopic The Iron Lady. John Williams received a lot of recognition for his work on War Horse. He received a nomination from the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, but he lost the Golden Globe to Ludwig Burs, the composer of the silent film The Artist. A lot of critics who rank film scores marked it as one of their best, ranking it in the top two or three. Now, The Artist was often at the top of the list, a trend that would continue all the way to the Academy Awards, where War Horse was nominated for Best Original Score alongside The Artist, Hugo, and Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Oh yes, the fifth nominee was The Adventures of Tintin, which was a record-breaking 46th nomination for Williams. War Horse was his 47th, and at least Williams could take comfort in the fact that he was now well in second place for the most Oscar nominations, and without a doubt, the most nominated living person. Steven Spielberg's obsession with war continued with his next film, going even further back in time with Lincoln, a story about Abraham Lincoln's attempt to abolish slavery. And coming along for the ride, of course, was John Williams. And that's the film I will discuss on the next episode of The Baton, and Victor has given me something to listen for, so that's making me even more excited. So, Victor, thank you so very much for coming along for the ride with me on discussing War Horse. It was a revelation on many levels. Thank you so very much. Well, it was an absolute pleasure. Honestly, Jeff, thank you so much for having me and letting me discuss with you this Williams score, uh, a score that I love. Uh, as a longtime listener of, listener of your podcast, it was super fun to be with you on the other side this time. So thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's always a different experience. You really can um, share your love of John Williams with Sway. So dear listeners, please, please make sure to submit a review of the show to Apple Podcasts when you can to help give the show a little more exposure and boost it up in the rankings. Thanks for listening as always. And until next time, the baton is down. 